0: welcome back to another edition of the heart to heart podcast my guest today is dr sunil dand so dr Dan is a physician he's working out of massachusetts right now as an internal medicine specialist uh, but grew up in the uk so dr Dan, welcome to the show
1: thank you it is a pleasure to be on your show
0: well i'm very very happy uh that we're chatting today and uh you know there's a lot of different reasons why i wanted to to have you on my on my podcast but um You know, certainly uh, I kind of connected with you on Twitter because uh, of your stance on on COVID. So, you know, maybe uh, we'll start there. Um, You know, there's been several, you know, landmark studies that have come out, you know, recently. You know, there's the one on mass, one on natural immunity. I'm not sure where you want to start. Like, which one do you think is the most important or the one that kind of caught you off guard the most?
1: Well, yeah, you alluded to a few great points there. I think almost... Every single thing which uh, our authorities were classing as misinformation um, has ended up as information now. And uh, what many of our authorities were saying turns out to be the misinformation. So it's it's highly interesting that we're having this kind of mass awakening with time as the fog of COVID subsides. I, I have so many issues with what the authorities were saying right from the very beginning. I did not think from... March of 2020 that we were following a logical or rational approach. I had suspicions about different motivations that were involved. I would say that the number one issue that affected me personally was the issue of natural immunity to COVID-19. And I found myself as a, a physician. My main practice is, is internal medicine in the hospital. I also do some um, outpatient work in the lifestyle medicine metabolic health arena, which is my, my main passion. But as a doctor who was working at the front lines of COVID since the very beginning, treating hundreds of patients in different hospitals, I even went to New York to the epicenter of COVID-19 to help there. And I contracted COVID-19 very early on. And I knew that i had had COVID. Thankfully, it was a a very mild case. And it was before we even knew that COVID was among us. And I knew that I was naturally immune to COVID-19. I was checking my own antibodies. And lo and behold, a year and three, four months later, I found myself in a position where I was being coerced into taking a vaccine that I didn't need. And the whole time, I was talking a lot for several months about natural immunity to COVID-19. It was being ignored. I was getting more and more frustrated and then unbelievably found myself in a position where I was faced with the possibility of losing my job, having to move state, even having to move country over this issue. Thankfully, common sense prevailed in the end. But I will neither forgive nor forget what the authorities were doing when we already knew at that point that natural immunity to COVID-19 was a, a very big thing. And this is not an argument against vaccinations. It is an argument against our authorities who are ignoring the very basic fundamental of evolutionary biology, which is natural immunity. So that's where I stand and we can certainly discuss any specifics from there.
0: Okay. Well, uh, you know, I can't believe that you had to go through all that, but uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't I I shouldn't say I can't believe it because I know a lot of other physicians have, but it's terrible that you guys had to, and you know, you shouldn't have had to go through that just for, you know, raising some concerns, or not even raising concerns, just pointing out that you know natural immunity is also uh, beneficial in per, in per, you know uh, providing protection against uh, severe disease and also against reinfection. Um, and so, I mean, when you saw that study then that came out. Uh, recently and for people who don't know uh, what I'm talking about there was a study that came out in the Lancet Uh, it was a meta-analysis I think there was 65 different studies pulled together in 19 different countries so you know quite a quite a good robust uh, method there and uh, what they found you know in that study was that uh, natural immunity was actually better than two doses of the vaccine and you know I had posted this uh originally without the graphs but if you look at the graphs in that study uh as I'm sure you know um, you did it it showed that it was not just you know a little bit better but it was substantially better and not just against one variant but you know across all variants so you know the fact that we you know didn't uh, take into account natural immunity when we were you know providing vaccinations to others uh, was terrible. It was unscientific, and you know we've done a disservice to a lot of those people who may have not needed to get vaccinated. You know, just like yourself, you know I am not against vaccine. I think that you know the vaccine was you know uh, a very valuable tool at least initially uh, in in the in the pandemic. But now, you know, I think that because the reason that we're doing well is not necessarily because of the vaccine, but it's probably more so due to fact that people have natural immunity. Again, I'm not saying that, you know, the vaccine has nothing to do with why uh you know for the most part covid's been controlled pretty well for you know the last few months almost even to the last year you know it's been much much better better controlled hospitals aren't as uh you know overridden with with patients anymore and I think again a lot of that is from the natural immunity component as opposed to the vaccine um so you know in your account you know how many you know uh people do you believe you know may have, been vaccinated unnecessarily that, you know, may have not required the vaccination due to the fact that they had natural immunity.
1: I really believe that those numbers could be in the, the millions yeah. um, when you take into account people all over the world. And it was inexcusable. And um, you, you c- correctly, uh, correctly cited that recent study there, the, the Lancet study, which was very comprehensive, but there were studies coming out, since the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, showing the durability of natural immunity. And even Dr. Fauci, St. Fauci himself, said this before the pandemic and then flip-flopped, as he's flip-flopped on so many other issues, that the reality is that natural immunity, infection, uh, post-infection immunity, is nature's best vaccine. And everybody knows this. Everybody who came through medical school, at least, who came through medical school pre-wokism and actually learned real medicine and science knows that. That is common sense. And I got COVID-19 through no fault of my own. It was February 2020, and I was very suspicious that it was COVID based on some symptoms I was having. I recovered quickly and knew from my antibody test that I was protected. And the logic just wasn't there for me.
0: No, just one question on on that, if it's okay. How did you know you were positive in the first place? Or or were you just kind of assuming based upon what was going on? Or did you have a positive COVID test?
1: I I actually have never had a positive COVID test. So what happened was, was, I contracted COVID uh, before we knew it was fully among us. It was on the news that was spreading. I live in a big metropolitan area in the U.S. I regularly travel to New York City. I am rarely ever sick. So what happened was I just started to feel feverish. I thought something is wrong. I took a day off work. That was it. And then (laughs) went back to work, not knowing. I thought I just had the flu. And then for about two weeks afterwards, I had this lingering dry cough. And this was, it was very, I mean, it was mild, but I, I, I wasn't bringing anything up. And then I was hearing all the information that the number one sign is a lingering, it's a dry cough. You don't bring up phlegm generally with COVID. And I thought, huh, it's strange, you know, I don't usually get sick, I had to take a day off work, wasn't feeling good now, got this dry cough, let me check my antibodies, which I did at the beginning of April, and they're sky high. And other people around me were testing and they were were not high. And I I knew then that it was COVID-19. And my logic and reasoning was, well, I had a very mild infection in the first place, what will the vaccine in the future protect me against because yes. they're already saying the idea of the vaccine is to prevent severe infection and there's no evidence that knock on wood somebody who's metabolically healthy who has a mild infection the next time it would be worse if anything it will be even more mild i was gonna and, say as like yeah,
0: in addition yeah. to having natural immunity you also to you know appear to be pretty young uh, and healthy. So you know based upon uh, that you know you have to take that into consideration as well you know so when I was you know asking earlier you know how many people do you think were you know uh, vaccinated unnecessarily? yes uh, natural immunity is something that you have to take into account but also take into account the person's age and the person's health status or vitamin D status and you know all those things exactly. you know with yourself you know appear to be uh, optimized but go ahead with uh, with the rest of the story.
1: Yeah, so uh, millions of people were probably in a similar circumstance to me. We were already dealing with a virus which had spread like wildfire before all of their full contagion. I mean, the um, social media and and, and mainstream media contagion set in and then we went into a lockdown, we panicked. Um, But the data wasn't there for going as far as we did. And okay, we waited months, the vaccine came out and the whole time I was working at the front lines seeing COVID-19 patients and hadn't been infected. And when rumors started to circulate, this is around May of 2021 that this thing is going to be mandated, I took a very strong stance at that point because for me it was an ethical issue. Here I am as a doctor, like you, my interest is metabolic health. The notion that I wouldn't take a medicine if I thought it would benefit me, is nonsense. Of course I would take it. I value my health. I really care what I put into my body. I'd do anything to improve my chances. But I knew, for me personally, that the risks were not going to outweigh the benefits. And I took it very seriously indeed that here is my my government putting me in an impossible position, and they're basically coercing me into a medical therapeutic that I'm 110% confident I don't need. And all these people who are throwing around terms like hybrid immunity, who's ever heard of that term before? It's like one of, these, one of the many made up terms since the pandemic started, um, like breakthrough infection, mild myocarditis, all these other terms that we use that none of us had ever heard before. But OK, maybe there is a phenomenon of, of hybrid immunity in someone who's at risk. You add a level of immunity to them from a vaccine. But I was 110% convinced that this thing, which after all is a novel therapy, it uses a novel way of working. It has a genetic means of working through mRNA. I'm not going to take it. It's not going to benefit me. And I will not let my government put me in a position where they're forcing a medical therapeutic on me that I know I don't need. Plus I'm a doctor that's been working at the front lines the whole time. The whole thing made no sense. And I made it very clear that I I would rather quit. I'd move somewhere else then be in a position to have this forced on me a couple of places actually ironically in new york would not let me work there so i ended my relationship with those hospitals but thankfully where i did work i was able to work out a common sense solution to this uh, a workaround uh, but yeah it, it, it just was unnecessary and those of us who actually read the studies from the beginning knew how this was going to pan out, that this vaccine was non-sterilizing, it was going to come with risks, and it's a coronavirus. It's going to keep circulating and mutating. And the vaccine may or may not help lower your chances, but it's not a magic bullet. Certainly not enough to warrant a mandate. So these mandates completely ethical a complete ethical red line for me. And I am shocked and disgusted that more authorities in the United States didn't stand up. Maybe I shouldn't be so shocked because we know the reality of how organizations and institutions are bought out, but I was actually proud of the United Kingdom. I cannot speak for your country, Canada, but I know in the UK, many royal colleges came out and said, you can encourage this thing, but you cannot mandate it, it's unethical. And as a result, they didn't have any mandates in the end, anywhere in the country. There were no mandates, there were no restaurant certificates, they talked about it, but they never went through with it. And that actually made me very proud of my home country, the United Kingdom.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Canada was not the same as the United Kingdom. We had a lot of restrictions, a lot of lockdowns. A lot of business closures. A lot of you know people who lost their business and are you know haven't been able to recover or are trying to recover now. Uh, so you know I wish we had followed suit with with you guys, but unfortunately we didn't. Um, you know there's only a few places I think in the world that were as locked down as much as as Canada and Ontario specifically, where where I am. So uh, I'm in London, which is about two hours from uh, Toronto. You know our area specifically was really locked down. We had very you know, severe mandates, you know, there's plenty of times where, you know, you had wow. to show your vax pass to get into a restaurant, get on an airplane, all that kind of kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I, I really wish we had gone a different route, but uh, we didn't. Um, that being said, you said a couple uh, very interesting things that I want to ask you about. So um, coronaviruses in general. So um, for people who uh, are not aware, there's actually seven uh, coronaviruses that we uh, identified, from, from my understanding. Four of them are common upper respiratory tract infections that have been circulating uh, prior to COVID. Then we have SARS CoV 1, which came on the scene around early 2000s. We had that SARS scare. Uh, and then, then there's MERS, which is basically a very severe disease, but it's been isolated so much. I think there's only been a few thousand people that have been infected total in the world ever. Um, and then the last, of course, is SARS-CoV-2 or COVID or what we have now. And, um, I remember looking early on at some of the studies that, uh, you were talking about, uh, Dr. Dend, and, you know, I'm sure that, uh, I wish I could, you know, remember exactly them now, you know, the office of the papers and that kind of thing, but it looked early on, like a lot through a lot of those studies that natural immunity, um, you know, was in fact protective and, and very long lasting as well. And uh, from my understanding, you know, people were saying that if you had SARS-CoV-1, you know, you would have uh, protection against SARS-CoV-2, again, COVID-19, what we're talking about now. And I mean, you we're talking about like a 20 year span there that is still providing some protection. So I was just wondering, you know, if you could speak to maybe some of the specific um, studies on immunity that you saw early on that showed that, you know, uh, having uh, COVID and recovering and having natural immunity does provide, you know, very robust protection against uh, reinfection and severe disease?
1: Yeah, so these studies started to come out. Uh, the first ones I saw actually were, were 2021. Um, some from the Middle East, Israel, Qatar, were, were showing um this phenomenon was clearly present a lot of the studies in the united states uh, were looking at healthcare workers who were all exposed there was one in the midwest um i can share this uh, this um uh, citation with you afterwards it was either in ohio minnesota which showed quite clearly that uh, people who had already been infected were not going on to get severe infections again and it was astonishing to me that uh, our health authority in the United States, the CDC, was not going with this data. They were cherry-picking their their own data. Um, Notoriously, in the summer of 2021, they uh, pulled out some Yahoo study um, and managed to cherry-pick some data from Kentucky, I believe, which showed the opposite, um, that um, natural immunity plus vaccination worked. And it was it, it was the worst piece of data collection and manipulation that you can imagine, but we've seen worse since then. Um, but prior to that, there were, was already data. And I mean, let's think about the simple fact, even with the initial strain, the Wuhan strain, how many people were asymptomatic? When, when I had it, for instance, I was around people when I started to feel unwell. There were no masks. Not everybody around me got sick. So clearly some people already had a level of immunity to it. It, it was not uh, like the plague spreading rapidly, infecting everyone who came into contact with it. The fact that was that it was asymptomatic should have told us two things from the very beginning: that lots of people were already immune to it, and secondly, it's impossible to contain a virus with a high asymptomatic rate unless you test every single person every day.
0: Yes, it's, uh, it's I, I just can't believe we did so much, you know, testing and, you know, uh, still today, actually, it's kind of ironic that we're talking about this because I think they just stopped um, some of the um, uh, rapid home home kits today. But yeah, the, the over testing, I think, you know, really contributed to the pandemic itself. You know, I think that if we had, um, you know, maybe had not as required uh, people to test as much, you know, we may not have had such of this. Um, you know, real big stress response that, you know, we had particularly in Canada. And, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy how many times some people, you know, tested themselves. I'm certainly not against testing. You know, I think that is, you know, something that we do need to do, but it didn't need to be done for every single person, especially when you're not asymptomatic. And uh, I'm not sure where they you know, grab the data on, you know, testing asymptomatic people all the time. But, um, you know, we, we know that asymptomatic spread is very, very low. So, you know, again, it's just another point where, you know, where is the science and, you know, mass testing people for asymptomatic spread? Um, I'm not really sure. But uh, that was definitely a very, very confusing point that I think a lot of people were were frustrated with.
1: Exactly. Yes. I mean, Um, a couple of points there with with the asymptomatic testing. Uh, Firstly, I do believe that we are victims of our own circumstance. At no point in history up until relatively recently would we have the resources to do that. Do you think in Africa, Asia, India, they have the resources to test, test, test like we did? Absolutely not. There's no way. Whatever we think the COVID rates were over there, they were 10 times more than, than we think because People simply didn't test. Who's going to test with an expensive test for uh, minor symptoms? But we had the resources. And I also believe that you shouldn't forget the influence of the major players here who are making a ton of money from testing, who had lucrative government contracts. A lot of roads lead to money. I know you believe this too. Follow the money. and When all is said and done, This will be looked into and we should absolutely look into the relationships of every single person who made money from tests with major government players who signed off on these tests.
0: Who did benefit the most from tests? You know, do you care to get specific about that?
1: Well, the companies first and foremost benefited, but this has been uncovered in the UK already. A lot of the companies who got lucrative government contracts for testing had relationships with members of parliament some of the members of parliament themselves had financial links to these companies so of course if if you have a situation where you can sign off on something which is going to generate a ton of money for yourself as well you're going to do that and when people are afraid and mainstream media is perpetuating this sense of fear you must get tested people are going to to say well this is a good idea these tests are available i mean when i look back and and think what we went through i mean we're all going to end up writing books on this one day or at the very least telling our grandchildren but i remember um i could travel back and forth um still thankfully because i'm also a u.s citizen if i was not i wouldn't be allowed back into the country but u.s citizens didn't need to be vaccinated to enter back into their own country so i would go back to the uk And the UK had a more intense lockdown, actually, than the US, which they're now suffering the financial consequences. But when they were locked down, anyone who visited the country had to go on the government website, register. You had to buy tests which would be sent to your house. And before you leave, you get tested. When you're there, you have three tests which you have to mail back. And then coming back, obviously, you had to test again before you board a plane. So I was in a situation where I would go back to visit family for maybe 10 days, 14 days. And in that time frame, I'd have five or six COVID tests. I mean, what the heck? And I had no yeah. symptoms the whole time. And I was having to do this. Some Somebody somewhere was making a, a ton of money. I'm thinking Heathrow Airport. They had entire sections dedicated to COVID testing. And you would have to pay 30 pounds, whatever that is, $50 for this test to be done. Which is like a two-second test, and it made no sense. You're feeling completely fine. Why are you testing for it? And you had a negative test two days ago. What are you trying to find here?
0: Yeah, that 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 doesn't make any sense. And I uh, I'm I'm very interested in in following the money and in finding out you know who did you know profit from all these people who were you know tested when they didn't have any symptoms. I mean, it's. It's yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy to think just because like you said, you know, we don't do that in, in other areas of medicine, you know,
1: we don't No, I mean, look at the resources expended. I would get text messages when I visited the UK, believe it or not. I kid you not. At least three visits, I went back. They had representatives of the national health service come to our house to check that I was at home and isolating for initially it was a 10 day requirement and I'm feeling <laughs> fine. and this is a system which if you get diagnosed with potential cancer won't even see you for 3 months where did those resources come from to focus so heavily on a virus which is asymptomatic in most people and half the people have already had makes no sense
0: yeah i mean i i had you know something probably i guess not quite as you know bad as that but when i went away in 2020 in december which was kind of unheard of, but you know uh, myself, my, my fiance uh, went away at that time. And uh, when we came back, we had to quarantine. And unfortunately, then we got back on the 14th and there was two weeks quarantine. So we couldn't see, you know, her, uh, her family over Christmas because of that. Right. So we kind of knew that going into it and we knew we were going to have a few days afterwards before new Year's. So uh, we thought, you know what, it was just, let's just go anyway. But Still, I just think it was completely unnecessary. You know, there was basically a full Christmas where we you know, didn't get to, to spend uh, Christmas days with, you know, my fiance's family, which is obviously a little bit, you know, disappointing. So I think a lot, and you know, you know, that's just one story you have your story, but there's a million other stories out oh, there of course, where, yes. you know people have, you know, not been able to see the bigger one is not being able to see your loved ones in the hospital when they're dying. Absolutely. Like, I was going to touch on that. See... People
1: who lost their relatives. It's, yeah. My heart breaks for these people being put through, put through that for for no reason i mean imagine knowing your loved one died alone and you weren't even allowed in with an n95 on it makes no sense
0: yeah that i think is is probably the worst thing um about the about that kind of situation um one thing that i wanted to ask you about today because it's such a a hot topic and you know i you know believe this from the beginning because again it made the most sense to me by far. So I guess we can't say the lab leak has been confirmed, but I mean, we're talking about, you know, Dr. Marty McKera, uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, like the best, you know, doctors in the world, essentially, you know, you know, and saying that, you know, this is definitely where it came from. The FBI has come out and said, that's where, you know, they think it's come from. So, you know, basically, you know, it's almost a general consensus now that this is where, the virus came from. Um, you know, is this a surprise to you? Did you think this from the, from the beginning, Sunil, or what are your thoughts on the lab leak?
1: It's not a surprise to me now. I must say when this first happened, COVID started to dominate the news. I did um, fall into the general mode of thinking that this was from a wet market. And I actually remember posting online the horrific conditions in these wet markets, which are awful. I mean, they wouldn't be allowed in in Western countries and conditions are rife for disease to spread. So I made that point. Um, But within four or five months, I seriously started to question that because I was talking to a lot of smart people who were telling me that there there were very suspicious sequences in this virus that didn't look natural. And then the Wuhan Institute of Virology right there. And I would say that the clincher was... Um, funnily enough, when I was working in New York, primarily taking care of COVID patients, I was I was taking care of a patient whose relative came in, and she was actually a um, virologist, and she ran her own lab. And we were talking, and then she started talking about what she was doing, and said, um, "I can't remember what part of the country she she was from far away, um, or she may have even been coming in from overseas." But either way, she was an expert, and she said, "Look, I." Um, I have to tell you something. Do you realize that this was a man-made virus? And I said, well, I've heard people say that. And she said, no, take it from me. I'm an expert. We all knew in our community, I was getting emails that this was not natural. The way it spreads is not like a natural virus. There's an HIV sequence in there. It's It, it totally is man-made. And she looked me in the eye and said that. And when she said that to me, because she was so trustworthy otherwise and such an expert, I said, boy, well, wow. you, uh, you, you are probably onto something here. And this is like a year and a half ago. So no, th- th- in answer to your question, the story does not surprise me at all. I think there was a mass cover-up. I think Dr. Fauci, we're only just beginning to realize how far deep he was into this mess. And I haven't thought highly of Fauci for a long time. But could you imagine, I mean, let's just say, I mean, again, I won't assume anything. Here you have this person who's basically leading the COVID pandemic response and is coming out, speaking to millions every day. Can you imagine you're a doctor too, ethically, knowing in the back of his head that he could have played a role in this actually starting in the first place? I mean, he didn't release the virus, but if this gain of function, all of these whispers are true, and let's be realistic, how many whispers have we had that end up being true? So wouldn't surprise me at all if we find out He was knee deep into it in this and was deliberately trying to cover it up and 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 basically ban any talk of it. Only a year ago, if you look on Wikipedia, lab leak was classed as a conspiracy theory. You were banned on social media. I mean, this is astonishing. I wish I could say the world has learned lessons from it. I'm not sure they have. The people who censored whether they realize what they did and what a terrible, terrible thing Happened, and the, the level of dishonesty and corruption that was potentially involved, and how they played a part in censoring a true story—it's—it's it's horrible.
0: Yeah, I think I think there's kind of like two parts to that. I think one is that uh, some of it is just general like willful blindness. People know it's there, and they you know just don't want to look that way at all. And then the other part is people just don't want to admit that. They were wrong or they don't want to admit that they were kind of duped you know and uh and i think that's a reason why some people it's so strange but like they're still holding on to like this hardcore narrative and even like doctors you know and oh, yes uh, and people some of like worst, yeah like uh we have this this group in canada signs up first and like they just keep on telling everyone to get vaccinated that the Cochrane review was a bad study and that everyone should mask up like it is crazy and they're supposed to be a group that's battling misinformation meanwhile they're <laughs> yeah, putting yeah. out a ton of misinformation um yeah i mean and this guy david fistman we have in canada i mean he's the same way he just keeps you know harping on the Cochrane's uh study and uh for people who aren't aware you know the Cochrane reviews have long been considered to be gold standard for you know evaluating evidence you know I'm not saying they're perfect but they are considered to be the gold standard and there was a view that came out just about a month ago uh, maybe a little bit more now maybe a month and a half that indicated that basically universal masking is ineffective but they don't have the evidence to uh recommend it at least and it's ironic too cuz I always bring this up is that um there was also a Cochrane review done on masking in 2020 uh, just for general viruses, for uh, general uh, respiratory viruses, I should say. And they had the exact same conclusions. And then we also have, you know, the Bangladesh study and the, and the DEN mask study that, you know, basically said that, you know, masks are largely ineffective overall. So, um, you know, when you're pulling and then also to the mask mandates, you look at the graphs, like across the States and across various different places, it looks like they made no difference. So like all of the data, like all of the data, you know, points to one thing yet somehow there's people out there. Again, some of them are even doctors and they're saying that, you know, everyone should still be masking. And so it's uh, like, you know, when you said earlier, you know um, that, you know, it's a lesson for the world and I think the lesson we'll learn, but I'm really not sure. I'm not sure either. You know, it's, it's kind of crazy that we have all this data, yet people still won't, you know, put their ego away and just admit that they were wrong and then just move on and and, and approve, you know, the current uh, science or the best evidence. Um, and I'm sure that you've seen that a lot, you know, where you are, too, in, in Massachusetts and, uh, and and abroad.
1: I have. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it touches on many bad streaks within our own profession of uh, not wanting to admit you're wrong, wanting to be authoritarian, wanting power, wanting to control people. These things go back hundreds of years. There's a lot of factors involved, I believe, in the psychology of certain doctors who have embraced this like a religion. And I'm so glad you mentioned the Cochrane Review. For anyone listening, please look up Archie Cochrane, because I went to the University of Wales in Cardiff, And I studied, spent countless hours in the original Cochrane Library, which is where he did his work. And he was an expert on communicable diseases. He was a complete medical hero. And he would turn in his grave if he saw what medicine has become today and what some physicians advocate for in the face of evidence to the contrary. It it makes no sense at all. And I I don't think, because obviously we, we think alike michael on many different issues, but different I don't issues. think you can draw an equivalence between people like us and people on the other side because we're very different. So people like us are saying, "Well, there's some doubt over what whether the vaccines are useful or not in this circumstance. There's some doubt over masks work, whether masks work. So let people decide. Let people d- make their own choices. Seems very reasonable. They're very different, and this is why they're so dangerous. And we must stand up and fight against them." They say, no, we are right, and you have to do this. There's no choice. If they could, you have to take the vaccine. You have to wear a mask. We are the authoritarians. They're not about choice. They're not about reason or being rational. So as far as I'm concerned, we are not equivalent sides of the debate. They are completely unreasonable, and they're very bad elements in our profession and the whole field of science that go back a a long, long time which is why doctors and scientists have done some atrocious things if you read the history books. And it takes people like us to really take a stand, whether it's for vaccine ethics, whether it's for saying, no, you're wrong on masks, we have to keep pushing back because if we don't, they win. And sadly, they occupy a lot of the top positions in medicine and science right now. Academia, I mean, you will get few, I tweeted about this the other day, you will get fewer more corrupt arenas than academic medicine. That's not to say your average academic is corrupt and giving bribes. It's the way the whole system works, the way things are funded. It's all based on on money, corruption, and business interests. Many doctors don't even realize that they're a silent party to it. They're being used.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree a thousand percent. I think that, you know, sometimes, uh, physicians don't realize, you know, the, the position that they're, that they're being put in. And then they kind of just go along with the narrative because they don't want to ruffle too many feathers. And I've been told, you know, so many times, like, you know, why are you speaking out against COVID, you know, you're just going to get in trouble and, you know, it's going to look bad for you and your image and this kind of thing. And I always just think like, you know, if everyone thought that, then nobody would be saying anything and we'd all just be obeying everything and following orders. So, you know, I feel like it's almost like my duty. Like I have to, you know, step up and say something because if there weren't people like yourself and like Dr. Martin McCaria and Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Coldorf and all these people who have stood up, then nobody would know these things. You know, people would still be in the dark. So, for the people who have, you know, seen the light and they know the truth, you know, you have to come out and speak the truth. Because if you don't speak the truth, then obviously, you know, all that darkness and all that corruption is just going to prevail. So, you know, it's we that's why we need to have conversations like this. And that's you know, why I want to chat with you today and have you on my podcast, because we need to spread this message, you know, around the world. And I and I think that in many ways um, it is being done. I mean the the studies that have come out recently like we've talked about have really shown that you know all of the uh, public health measures were you know basically all for nothing for the most part um, and that we received really really poor advice so you know we do need people to you know stand up so you know I'm, th- I'm so thankful for people like yourself are willing to you know come on and say these things because um, you know we need more of that in medicine and it's unfortunate like you said that there's so much corruption in medicine and that's the reason why You know, there's, uh, you know, fewer, there's not so many physicians that are speaking out. But like I said, that number, I think, is definitely growing. Like, do you think it's growing uh, from what you've seen?
1: I do. I do believe it's slowly growing. More are speaking out, but um, I'm still very disappointed. And I I won't forget that that so few spoke up because it's always true if you look at any world event, people get braver afterwards when there's not that level of fear, but actually your duty. And I think the duty of physician, because I take my oath seriously, I'm sure you do too. One of the core principles of, of being a good ethical physician is when you see something, say it. Yeah. Whether it's a vaccine side effect, whether it's something obviously not working, whether it's a phenomenon that seems unusual and counter to the narrative, you it's your duty to speak up, be brave. And so few doctors did it. Okay, a few more are now. But I think, if nothing else, even if no doctors did it, people are not stupid. I mean, what's that phrase? You can fool someone w- once, twice, but not three times. Look at the vaccine uptake rates, they're abysmal. 96% of appointments in the UK for COVID vaccines are not taken up. Every other person says to me, I'm not getting it. I don't believe the authorities. And then you have the clowns at the CDC who are doubling down, saying you must get it, you must get it, not realizing that they become parodies of themselves. People are laughing at them, but they are just either so walled off or so soaked in their own corruption, they can't see it. But especially in a time like today with social media, if nothing else, even if every doctor, even if I followed the narrative, I still think the general public is not stupid, and they would cotton on after a bit and push back, with or without us.
0: I think, I think so too. And, I, and I'm very glad, you know, too, that there are other people speaking out. And, you know, certainly when you have an MD behind your name, it gives you a little bit more validity when you speak out. But there's been a lot of other people that have spoken out that I think that have, uh, you know, really um, provided a lot of encouragement for, for others to speak out. And I think that's been, you know, uh, just fantastic for the for the whole kind of movement. Um, So, you know, I do think that uh, we do need more physicians speaking out, but that number is slowly growing. And hopefully, you know, with more conversations like this, you know, we'll have uh, even more people coming out as well and the other thing that why more people are speaking out now too is because of the studies you know like we have we talked about the mass study of their Cochrane review you know we talked about uh the lancet study uh and then you know also too i'm not sure if you saw um i forget the journal but there was a uh, meta-analysis plus uh trial sec- uh, sequential analysis on vitamin d and they literally said in the uh in the in the conclusions that there is indisputable evidence for vitamin d against covid and there was also to multiple other meta-analysis that said the exact same thing and there was another new study uh i haven't put it on my twitter yet we're going to do it i think today or tomorrow about vitamin d you know preventing uh, severe disease and infection and so you know all these things that so many physicians have been saying from the start are now, you know, finally, uh, not, I shouldn't say finally, they have, they were shown to be true in earlier studies, but now there's just, you know, more and more studies that are just validifying it. And so, you know, is that something that you, um, thought should have been discussed more? Because to me, it was obvious that, you know, vitamin D was just low hanging fruit. And I always say this too, like, even if I'm wrong, You should, you know, have sufficient levels of vitamin D anyway, you know, regardless of COVID or not, because, you know, low low vitamin D is linked to low testosterone, low vitamin D is, you know, linked to uh, depression, you know, so low vitamin D is obviously linked to osteoporosis. So, you know, were you kind of surprised that we didn't, um, you know, advocate for, for vitamin D earlier on?
1: I I was and I I wasn't because I know that our whole collective mindset in mainstream culture is never to address root causes of which metabolic health is obviously the elephant in the room and metabolic health ties into vitamin D. You need vitamin D for optimal metabolic and immune health. It's such a a vital vitamin. So instead, what do we do? We we lock people down. We, We take them out of the sunlight, even worse for darker skin complexions like myself who already millions i know you've got a large indian population in canada too it's a huge problem lack of vitamin d in a colder climate Um, and it was such an easy thing that you could push 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 and say check your vitamin d levels take a supplement make sure that your health is optimized why not start with that the, the simple things and we could probably talk for an hour about avoiding ultra processed foods and everything else sugar i mean instead of taking Nurses' donuts, take them vitamin D capsules or some blueberries. But we just don't think it yeah. through because we're all about Band-Aids in healthcare. And again, this is a whole other discussion, but we we never get to root causes and think, who's getting sick? Why are they getting sick? I treated hundreds of COVID-19 patients. I had maybe 30 or 40 under the age of 50, and every single one was obese. I did not see a normal Weight person come into the hospital with COVID-19 who was younger. And it's right then. We all saw that from the beginning. How many times did you see it talked about on the news? Hardly ever. I mean, it was such a golden opportunity. And if we didn't promote the metabolic health anti-obesity message during COVID, when are we going to do it? That was the chance to do it
0: yeah that was absolutely the chance and i agree with you you know 100 if you look at all the data you know it, it appears that obesity is a significant risk factor for uh you know getting severe disease from covid and i don't know why that messaging wasn't sent out and the other thing too is that i understand you know people say okay well you know it's an infection that comes on quick you can't lose weight overnight fine. You can lose weight in, you know, three months. You can definitely lose weight in six months. You can definitely lose weight in three years, you know, and it's been three years and that messaging, you know, is still uh, not come out. And again, you know, I'll come back to vitamin D on this. Like, You know, you should be trying to getting lean anyway, you know, you don't want to be obese for, you know, uh, so many different reasons, just like you want, you know, optimal vitamin D for so many different reasons. So even if there was no COVID around, you should still obviously be trying to get to, you know, uh, a decent weight where you're not putting yourself at risk for, uh, you know, severe disease. And, you know, I think, and I had Kevin Bass on here recently, uh, maybe about a month ago, and he said the exact same thing, and he's been saying, you know, the same thing on Twitter as well, is that this was a golden opportunity to really uh, combat the uh, obesity epidemic, and we failed miserably. And not only do we fail miserably, we didn't even address it, like it wasn't even a thought. And uh, it's, it's just atrocious that, you know, this has happened and that there was basically, you know, very, very little uh, news coverage on it.
1: Atrocious is a good word. Actually, we made it worse.
0: <laughs> yeah, it no, we did. We did we didn't make it address worse. It.
1: We actively made it worse, which is even more terrifying. Um, can I ask you, um, Dr. Hart, what vitamin D level you advocate for?
0: So in, uh, in Canada, we, we use, uh, a, a scale that goes from 75 to 250, uh, millimoles. I know a lot of people are using the nanograms, uh, uh per, per deciliter. Um, so I always, you know, test my patients and I try to get them into the optimal range. Um, so again, between 75 and 250 is, is the range in Canada. Um, and I always make sure that, you know, at least don't be, um, deficient or, or, or insufficient yeah. you know because you definitely want to be in the normal range now i'm not sure if you're at like you know 250 or 225 if that's better than someone who's at you know 125 or 150 i don't know if there's you know as clear as data on that but my guess would kind of just be that um generally speaking with anything like when you correct the most deficiencies you're gonna have the biggest Return. So, you know, if you take someone from uh, deficient to insufficient, that's going to be massive. If you take someone from, you know, insufficient to sufficient, that's going to be a massive um, uh, increase or, or a protective effect. I don't know if there's a massive increase in protective effect from, say, being, you know, lowly um, sufficient, whereas as to being, you know, optimized, but, you know, I, you know, I, my kind of thing is like, why not be optimized? You know, if you're still within a safe range, you know, if you're still, uh, you know, not supplementing too much vitamin D, where are not placing yourself at, you know, risk for hypercalcemia or kidney stones or anything like that, then, you know, I think it should be more geared towards, you know, at least the middle range to the higher end range of, of vitamin D. But how about yourself?
1: Yeah, so we we have a lot of debate. We obviously use a a different scale. um, And I think the lower cutoff is 20 to 25. Um, So I I like it above 30. Um, I have seen some people taking monstrous doses of vitamin D, and it ends up close to 100. I've also seen studies, as I'm sure you have, that you don't want it to be super therapeutic because you can actually increase calcium buildup potentially. Um, But most patients that I encounter, unless they're on a supplement, surprisingly low to deficient so i get them on a oral supplement um the darker one skin the more likely more higher doses that would be required um, but yeah 30 and above would be an ideal for me
0: and do you recommend k2 as well vitamin k2 I,
1: i've seen that done typically I'm, I'm not doing that routinely right now um, is that something you're a, a big believer in
0: I mean, I'm not necessarily a big believer. I'm not saying that everyone has to supplement with vitamin K2. Some of the data does look pretty interesting. And for people who are listening, you know, basically uh, what some of the data suggests is that uh, if you're if you have sufficient or optimal levels of K2, what it's going to do is take that calcium and deposit in your bones. Whereas if you don't have uh, sufficient levels of K2, then it can be deposited into your arteries and contribute to coronary artery disease. So, you know, I think um, I get a little bit of, uh, or quite a bit of K2, I think from green leafy vegetables. So I eat quite a few of those. So I think I get enough from uh, from food alone. But if you're someone who does need too many green leafy vegetables, you don't get a lot of K2 in your diet and it's, and it's not in, you know, a ton of, of foods, then I think it's something that's reasonable to supplement with. And I have seen a lot more combination products of vitamin D3 with K2 recently. So it's something that I'm uh, going to look into more into the future because, um, you know, the research does look, uh, very interesting and promising on it.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm keen to, to look that up too. I mean, um, yeah, low hanging fruit there, vitamin D supplements. Um, some other elements that I would, would like to see um, research look into, which are crucial. I think a lot of people run at chronically low potassium and magnesium levels, magnesium mm-hmm. especially. I would yeah, love to see a study on that. The amount of patients that I check magnesium levels on and they're low, and that is such a crucial crucial cofactor, it's it, it's an element that everyone needs, trace element. And uh yeah, a lot of people are not getting enough primarily because they don't have a good diet, but it's very easy to take a two or four hundred milligram supplement of, of magnesium.
0: And do you always test on blood tests? magnesium RBC? Or did you the mag- do a, or did you just or do you just do a plain magnesium level a plain
1: magnesium? Plain magnesium plain magnesium. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting.
0: Um, well, I know we only have uh, a few minutes left. There is there anything else that you that you wanted to uh, discuss today?
1: Uh, well, the whole focus on, on on metabolic health and and trying to get more awareness. I I really hope that we are reaching a, a critical mass because uh, we are way worse than Canada and many other Western countries. It's been estimated under ten percent of the country is metabolically healthy. I actually believe That's that okay. The U.S.
0: Oh, the U.S., okay. United States. Oh, the U.K. Yeah. is a
1: little bit better, although not a lot better. Mm-hmm. And I really think that we are in a position where if you were to take the average American, say age 25 or 30, and the average sub-Saharan African, 25 to 30, providing they're not in some extreme war-torn area, the African would have better metabolic health than the American. And this is ultimately, it's going to bring down the country. Seriously, Mike, it is going to bring down the United States. I mean, you cannot have so many people so sick. I mean, our metabolic health is being destroyed. We've already touched on some reasons why ultra-processed food, sugars, seed oils, unnatural foods. And I do believe that we need a campaign on the scale of big tobacco to combat this. I'm not a big believer in big government or government overreach, but I don't see any other way than for government to get involved and say, look, this is destroying the country. Our competitors, Russia, China, et cetera, are much healthier than us. And it's crippling the country, increasing tax dollars. People get sick. They're not as productive. But we are in a a horrible place in the United States, and it's visibly got worse. And it's not just a visual thing, people being obese. When I see it I I think of their metabolic health, mental health too. inflammation, mental health, inflammation, and our, our country cannot continue down down this road. The UK is not too far behind. But I'm keen to get your thoughts as well on how we how we even start to grapple with this issue and reverse the ship with so many people being sick right now from lifestyle related diseases
0: yeah i i mean i was shocked when i heard it was about uh a month ago maybe i i or maybe it was longer than that actually a few months ago i had heard that the obesity rate in in the united states is 42.5%. so i'm talking about obesity the uh overweight category it's about 70% and it just keeps going up so like my kind of whole thing is like you know people say like sick care versus health care and, and i get that but at the same time like, if, if, like, what if it's 50% or 60% or 70% of people are obese? Like, there's no healthcare system that can, that's equipped to keep up with that. You know, like, exactly. I, I understand, you know, preventative medicine. I love preventative medicine. It's, it's, it's my favorite thing. It's my favorite passion. But at the same time, you know, we have these, we have hospitals, which are supposed to be more, you know, acute medical centers that you go to when, when you're sick. But, you know, I, we didn't create hospitals so that, you know, people would, uh, could, you know, just basically treat themselves, um, you know, very, very poorly, you know, put on all this weight and then overwhelm hospitals. Like hospitals were created so that, you know, if you, you got sick, you got acutely sick, you got into a car accident or something happened, you go to the hospital. But now hospitals are just being, you know, completely overrun by people with chronic diseases as opposed to people with acute diseases. And I think that's made the healthcare much, much worse, and it's created a huge bottleneck. Um, You know, a lot of people are are, are finding it very frustrating, in Canada anyways, to, you know, go to the hospital and not being able to get adequate medical care in uh, a reasonable amount of time. And, and, um, you know, again, like I only see this getting worse. And again, the issue with this is that people are afraid to talk about you talk anything about, you mention the word obesity and and all of a sudden you're fat shaming. And it's like, guys, like we need to get this, we need to get this thing under control. Like this is really, really bad. Like, you know, if you have a problem, you know, and you just sweep it under the rug, what's going to happen, that problem is going to get a lot worse. So, you know, it might be a little bit ugly to talk about at first, but it's going to be a lot uglier if we don't, you know, fix this, this issue. And, um, you know, I know that we, uh, we agree on a a, a ton of things. And I'd love to have you back on the podcast, you know, just to talk about uh, obesity and lifestyle medicine and not to talk about COVID at all.
1: Sure. Yeah, happy to do that. My area of interest. And yeah, we need to Get away with this whole notion of, of fat shaming. I mean, um, we have to talk about it. It's our duty as physicians. And you've probably seen we have this ridiculous movement in the United States to normalize obesity. In some cases, even celebrate it. Yeah. And it, it's nothing could be worse than overseeing your citizen working. get sick and saying nothing. And the very people who claim to care as well about minorities are watching them get sicker and sicker. And and then they eat up healthcare costs and, and go bankrupt themselves in the end in the United States. It, it makes no sense. We have to talk about this. To hell with all these people who say you shouldn't weigh people at the doctor's office or talk about it. We have to, even if, I mean, we call it fat shaming, but was a re, was the world really worse 30, 40 years ago? People would pile on pounds. Everyone would say, what's going on? And then they'd say, "Oh, okay, I'll cut back. Yeah. but. In today's environment, we do have a lot of other reasons why people's metabolic system is completely thrown off. The, it starts with the food supply. It's going to take some sort of government intervention, I believe, at this stage to reverse this. Um, but as you said, whole other topic. I would love to come back and talk about just that with you.
0: Okay perfect well uh, I think uh, part one is is kind of over so, so we'll end it there but um, Dr. Dan tell everyone uh, where they can find you online about your Twitter handle and and where they can learn more about you.
1: Yeah so I have a, a website Senildan.com where you can learn a lot more about me. I am on social media uh, Twitter at Dr. Sunil Dand. I also have a YouTube channel and I put out regular videos an uncensored platform which we need nowadays on locals and i also run an online course which focuses on metabolic health you can find all of these things via my website and and twitter so come find me and hopefully if you've enjoyed what i've said and what we talked about i can help you some more
0: excellent excellent well again thanks so much for coming on and uh, i'm holding you to it We're, we're good definitely gonna have to do round two soon
1: definitely take care thank you for having me
0: Okay, thanks for listening, everybody. And as always, I'll be back again next week.